Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Pia Sunhaga, who won two Olympic gold medals and a World Cup silver medal as the coach of the U.S. women's national team and now has a fascinating new job coaching the Brazilian women's national team. We've had some great guests lately, including Drake Hills, Ada Hegerberg, and Ted Lasso's Jason Sudeikis and Brendan Hunt. I also encourage you to check out my new podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story. All eight episodes are out, and you can binge all of them to your heart's content. We'll have Pia Sunhaga on soon here, but let's start with some talk about the soccer world with my friend Chris Whittingham, the radio voice of Inter Miami and a co-host of the Chelsea Miked Up podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Doing good, Grant. How are you, sir? Doing okay. We're recording this on Sunday, right before my Kansas City Chiefs play in the AFC title game. So I'm I'm fired up. This comes out on Monday, so we'll know by then if I'm still fired up. But uh, <laughs> let's let's talk a little soccer. And I want to start with Weston McKenney because he continues to do cool things for Juventus. Started and scored again for Juve in a two nothing win over Bologna on the weekend. He's got three goals and two assists now in all competitions this season. He's the first U.S. men's national team player to score in San Siro, first to score in Camp Nou, won his first career trophy this midweek in the Italian Super Cup. It's basically a certainty now that Juventus will make McKenney's loan permanent. What are the reasons that you think Weston McKenney has exceeded expectations at Juventus? Well, I, I, all credit goes to him, right? And and it's really kind of one of the few things that probably Andrea Pirlo has gotten right. And it would make sense that kind of grooming a central midfielder would be among the things that he would get right. But I just think a lot of the bad habits that I saw really both with Schalke and also at times with the U.S. men's national team, we didn't really see him very much with the U.S. men's national team, but there were times where I think a lot of people thought, well, what is Weston McKinney great at? We know that he covers a lot of ground, he's very intense, can put in a strong tackle, but what is he really great at in terms of being a central midfield player? And he just, it seems like everything has clicked for him. One of the interesting things at Juve is he's among the players furthest forward out of that yeah. three-man midfield. And he's getting into goal-scoring positions. He scored again today for Juve and probably could have had a second as well. Well set up by Cristiano Ronaldo. It was kind of a tap-in that he unfortunately couldn't put the other side of the keeper. But he gets forward. He just seems like he understands the tactical aspect of things. And I do kind of wonder if, you know, I, I know the, the Italian cliche is not always true that it's a tactical league, but they do kind of focus on those things more than certainly they did at Schalke. So you kind of wonder if an increased acumen, he certainly bedded in well with that Juve squad very well. You see him on Instagram all the time having fun with his teammates. It just seems like it's an ideal move. And how often have we wanted to see a U.S. men's national team player make the kind of move where it is perfectly suited to their skill sets, to their personality and allows them to grow by leaps and bounds the McKenny Juve marriage could not have worked out any better it's fascinating to me because I remember meeting up with Weston McKenny at Schalke in 2019 for a video we did and talking at length with him and he talked a lot about how Christian Pulisic and what he did going to Germany showed the way for him and a lot of other young Americans that this is a path and I find it fascinating now that McKenney is going to show a lot of other young Americans a path to Italy. 
into a club like Juventus. And I do wonder a little bit if these Italian clubs would be going as nuts for Brian Reynolds as they are lately, if Weston McKinney had not done so well so quickly with Juventus. It's just a... The idea of the American soccer pioneer goes back a ways, right? You know, to the 80s and 90s and goalkeepers going to Europe. But we're still part of that process in a way right now. And McKenney's leading it. And I would not have predicted, I don't know anyone who would have before this season started, that he would be where he is right now doing what he's doing with Juventus. Um, I was hoping he would go to Southampton and I thought he'd have a better chance of starting there. And here he is. At this point, and he's not a finished product yet, but at this point, he's been one of, if not Juve's best midfielders this year. And he brings an energy to the team, which is is just so palpable every game, on and off the field. He's in the right place, knows where to be. So he has a sense for positioning, the ability to carry it out. He's dangerous on set pieces, as we saw on this goal. There's just so much there that is stuff that we should be excited about. And it's funny because like winning a trophy, I guess I didn't think much about it heading into the game, the Super Cup, Super Copa. Like, and I'm not a huge fan of Super Cup <laughs> games, by the way. It's not really I, a trophy. Like, but it's still his first trophy and you, you played the game to win trophies, right? And so like, it was cool to see how excited he was about that trophy and obviously he joined a team that's going to be in the position to win trophies which you know i i'm just really happy for him and it's not going to be a straight line upward but just far exceeding expectations at this point and you mentioned that kind of trailblazing ability that a player like weston mckinney can have it's fundamental because you're right I don't think the Italian market is as interested in Brian Reynolds unless Weston McKinney had succeeded before him. And that is why Americans get their hopes up so much with any player that's succeeding on any level in Europe because that door being open is huge because it gets Americans in the headlines, which is really important. And also, let's not pretend like the path towards America being good at soccer is not at least somewhat incentivized by money. Right. I think athletes have not really seen kind of like how, you know, James Harden is like the first 50 million dollar basketball player and, you know, baseball players get 300 million dollar contracts and Patrick Mahomes got this absurd contract like the size of the prize at the end is really important. And while it's not in apples to apples because transfer fees don't necessarily go to the player. It is still important that big dollar amounts are thrown around with, with Americans. And the thing with McKenney is him succeeding not only encourages other Italian clubs to be interested in American players, but also, I think, makes those clubs explore the American market because there is value to be found. One of the reasons I think that Weston McKinney is at Juve is because Juve needs to do more with their dollar than they were doing before. Pre-pandemic, they wouldn't have bought Weston McKinney for 18.5 million euros. They would have gone and spent 40 million to go and buy whoever the best central midfielder was in another Serie A club or another Champions League club to plug a spot where they needed to plug in. Now that they have to do more with their money, they need to find value. And there's value in America because... An American club like FC Dallas, 
would be really thrilled to get $7 million for a right back who's only played half a season for them. It's, it's a massive sale for an MLS club, whereas, like, that's a Tuesday in Italy. And so I, I do think that, like, that value and the dollars that are being linked with American players is massive because it opens the doors. And Jose Mourinho said this recently at a, at a panel that he was doing. Clubs are now going to start scouting in America. And, and, and it's a really interesting development because we've been waiting for that to happen for how long? And I think that day has finally arrived. You know what's also interesting? We talk about the awareness that you can make money as a professional soccer player in Europe, in the United States now. But the cultures are still different in the sense that we know what the transfer fee value will be for Juventus to buy Weston McKinney, 18, 20 million euros. We still don't know what his salary is going to be. We still actually don't know what Christian Pulisic's salary is that he makes at Chelsea. Whereas in American professional sports, we know that it's just interesting to me how basically I could tell I, there's some database on USA Today where I can find out what every MLB player makes salary yeah. wise and for how long. And we know MLS salaries because the union aside from 2020, releases that, that those figures. So I do wonder if we're going to get there eventually. I just find that to be a quirk of, mm-hmm. of the soccer world. Like for, like our friend Fabrizio Romano, like, why can't you get the guy's salary? I think that would be interesting. <laughs> and I'm sure agents, like the, the reason why agents share that information is because uh, that's, that's a ringing endorsement for their business. But I mean, you, you will occasionally see a, you know, pounds or euros per week figure that gets thrown True. around. But uh, we don't always see you know, what these guys make. I just think, like, Christian Pulisic, even if the headline isn't necessarily understood by non-soccer fans, Christian Pulisic, $73 million in the same headline is really important, right? Yes, those $73 million are not going to Christian Pulisic, but it's still important for somebody reading, oh, wow, American, $73 million. Where, where, how, do I get in on, how do I get in on this? Yeah, no, totally. And Credit to our friend Tom Bogert over at the MLS website for breaking the news on Roma appears to be finalizing a deal with Brian Reynolds from FC Dallas to bring him over to that club. We'll see if that gets uh, done and dusted in the coming days here. But interesting things happening in Italy right now for American soccer players. We had goals scored this weekend at club level in Europe by U.S. men's national team players, not just McKinney. Josh Sargent had a terrific goal for Werder Bremen. Tyler Adams got his first Bundesliga goal, even though Leipzig ended up losing to Mainz, which is a bad loss. And Matthew Hoppe actually didn't score against Bayern Munich over the weekend, but he had scored five goals in three games for Schalke, which is kind of... I don't know, very Linsanity type stuff for the 19-year-old American who not many of us had heard of before. If you were to pick, though, I'm curious about this. We're talking about goal scoring. If you were to pick a starting center forward for the U.S. men's national team right now, who would it be? Would it be Josh Sargent? Would it be Jossi Zardes? Would it be someone else? I am kind of intrigued by the false nine notion. I mean, I, I get that you'd need to have a center forward out there, but... I, I'm I'm just I don't it doesn't strike me in any particular way. I would go with Sargent, but when, when you brought up Josh Sargent, one of the things that I was going to kind of mention is he scores a cracking goal today, but you know from 22 yards out. But the difference between I think then and now with the U.S. men's national team fandom is you would like talk yourself into Josh Sargent because he plays in the Bundesliga regularly. All right, he's got to start. He's got to play. Whereas now, like my kind of approach is like sitting with my arms folded, going. 
like do more, Josh Sargent. Yeah. I know Werder Bremen is not an exciting team. They're not a great team going forward, and he doesn't get very many opportunities. But you know, when Matthew Hoppy comes in and scores five goals in three games for Schalke, it's like, well, it's not impossible, you know, to be in a bad situation and still score goals. So I, I still want to see more from Josh Sargent. I think ultimately he is the most talented center forward that, that the United States men's national team has. I'll be curious kind of positionally where Tim Weah ends up falling, but I, I would probably for a game today start Josh Sargent because I'm not somebody who believes, even as good as Zardes is in Major League Soccer, I don't believe he should be the U.S. men's national team's number nine. I just don't think he's got enough about him in order to do that. I mean, he does fit into Greg Berhalter's system. He knows how to play the game, and he can score goals. But just, I think if you want to win big things at the international level, I don't think Zardes could be your nine. So I'd make a ceiling play on Sargent and have him start, but I don't know if I would feel terribly great about it. Yeah, and I think if you start Sargent, which is what I would do as well right now, I think you would, the feeling would be that the stars are in other positions, you know, even the young guys for the U.S. men's national team. And, you know, you certainly hope that the U.S. does get a, just a a predator of a, of a center forward because you need that. And, And Sargent could become that at some point, but the false nine though, I don't know, man, like what, legit? Like that experiment? Yeah, <laughs> I actually thought he played the position fairly well. I mean, you did see in those friendlies in November that it did improve quite a bit when they moved away from it. I don't know, maybe Gio Reyna? I mean, is, is that is that a crazy... I think he's more comfortable playing centrally than he's playing wide in my view. Um, but if you want to get the best American players out there, yeah. I don't know if a center forward cracks the U.S. best 11, but you do kind of need it, particularly in the Burhalter system, because ultimately these are chance creation mechanisms for center forwards. Greg Burhalter's career in Major League Soccer is making center forwards great goal scorers. And so, you know, think of Ola Kamara, you know, Giazzi Zardes in Columbus as well became a really good goal scorer playing for Greg Burhalter. It's about creating chances for that guy in the middle. So... I do think you need someone who thinks that way, but I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm not particularly struck by any of the options at the moment. I am curious to see what happens with Matthew Hoppy. Not a big sample size, obviously, and he's not going to continue scoring goals at the rate we've seen in January, but that's a promising situation there for just like an American that we were probably aware of in November when he made his debut for Schalke, but you know, this isn't a guy who spent a lot of time in U.S. youth national teams and... And so for someone just in his position to emerge Mm -hmm. in the Bundesliga and show that, yeah, you can score goals with basically the worst team in the Bundesliga, (laughs) um, it's kind of a crazy story. I just hope Schalke starts allowing him to do interviews because I've been working on this one for a while. He had not done (laughs) a single one. And if you're Schalke and you want to get known in the United States, not a great strategy. I'm hesitant to say Matthew Hoppy when you ask that question. I right. mean, how many young center forwards have you like seen crowned before, right? Like you've you've been in this game longer than I have. Like the number of guys that like have a good month some in Major League Soccer in Europe and all of a sudden we need to start him tomorrow. Like uh, you know, we, we've seen that before. So, I mean, on current form you'd say Matthew Hoppy, but like I am kind of being a little bit more discerning than I might have been 10 years ago if I had seen a, a, an American score five goals in, a, in three games in Germany, because I, I don't want to just go, well, Matthew Hoppy is our, you know, our, our next great hope at the center forward position, because how long have we been waiting for that person? I go back to 2005, and I remember when Eddie Johnson, and he made his big breakthrough scoring goals over a similar short, small sample size period 
but people were extremely excited about Eddie Johnson. He did, I think, tie for the golden boot in MLS. It was a year when, like, it was only 10 goals that got it, but I think he was with FC Dallas at that point. And there was a ton of excitement about him. Obviously, he hadn't done it on the European stage and, and eventually did join Fulham and kind of bounce around a little bit uh, in Europe. And Eddie Johnson had a, had a pretty good career that unfortunately got cut short. I actually had a DM with him last week. He's, he's coaching down in um, Florida, I think. But he also symbolized something that at the time was just something we'd never seen before and still is a very rare thing where you had a black American player coming from, as, as Eddie would say, the hood uh, and becoming a soccer player, like a really good professional soccer player. And I think at the time in 05, that's another reason why, because of Eddie's story and because he had those goals early on, uh, that he got a lot of attention. And you know, I, I know from talking to him, he, he'd like to see more Eddie Johnson-type stories because we still don't see that very often in American soccer. Yeah, and it's something that you and I have texted about off-air, and I kind of want to build out an idea. That way it's not so half-baked when I bring it to air, but here we go. Um, <laughs> like, you know, the, of the players that have been sold or, you know, brought to Europe, it's pretty interesting that... So I, I have I have 11 names that have been sold or, you know, players that are figuring in Europe right now. So there are seven African-American players. Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, Reggie Cannon, Zach Steffen, Brian Reynolds... Chris Richards to Bayern Munich and Mark McKenzie, who was just sold to Belgium. And then, you know, I, I've, I've included other players. You know, Sargent has gone over, Hoppy has gone over, but, you know, Joe Scally. These are also players that have fetched fees. Uh, right. Brendan Aronson, Gio Reyna, and uh, Christian Pulisic I included in there, even though it's not like he was sold by an MLS club. So in terms of sales, right, like big money sales, it's pretty interesting to me that, it, that a disproportionate number to them relative to the soccer playing population, also relative to the perception that, America does not do enough to engage African Americans, which is true. But also, like, think about within that structure, the hit rate of players of African American Academy produced players going to Europe and succeeding is kind of remarkable, given what you know the general state of play is uh, from a racial divide standpoint within Major League Soccer. You're totally right, and that's just really good stuff. And, and the fact that you brought that up, all those names off the top of your head, very impressive as well. I have, I have, uh, I have, a, I have a note on my phone that I've been keeping track of this. <laughs> I'm not going to pretend like I did that. I did that off the top of my head. <laughs> but it's interesting. Like in my Freddie to Do podcast series, we devoted much of episode three to how black Americans in that community responded to the emergence of Freddie Adu because there had not been a black American soccer superstar at that point. So so can we call this kind of the Adu generation then? <laughs> I mean, we gotta, it, give, we gotta give Freddie all the credit. <laughs> and not all the credit, but like some of the credit, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I mean, yeah. it's, it, it's fascinating. And we are seeing things happen. You know, I, I, I noticed someone put out a thing last week uh, after the NWSL draft, a record number of black American players drafted. And so, you know, stuff is is happening, you know, and, and for this country, which has often been, soccer's often been seen as a white country club sport. Yeah, these are, these are positive developments. And it's so interesting when you compare it to the rest of the world. Like, I, I will hear sometimes kind of from a narrative standpoint, like a player like Patrick Bamford for Leeds, it is very often brought up in the discussion about him in England, that not not that he was you know a rich kid, he's middle class. Like, oh, yeah, he's middle class. Like I don't know if he can really cut it out. Like it is so ingrained that football is a working class sport in England that you know for someone to be middle class is 
kind of out of the ordinary. So like the, the idea that our system is so different than that, that it's not the working class sport. It is kind of like the rich kids sport. Um, it, it's just so funny how different that is to the rest of the world. Yeah. And, and we'll, I'll save this for another podcast episode. There's still some major gains that, that need to be made in terms oh, massively, of yeah. MLS. This came up this week uh, again with blackhead coaches, very few of them, uh, very few minorities and black Americans in positions of power in MLS, whether it's team presidents, GMs, owners, all that stuff. In any case, actually, I do want to talk about a game that took place in England on Sunday. FA Cup, Man United 3, Liverpool 2. Two teams going in very different directions lately. What did we learn in this game? Well, I think there's a couple of things here. First off, uh, Liverpool, I think they go four games in the Premier League, and then obviously today they did score uh, twice, but uh, four games in the Premier League without scoring... That's you know remarkable. That trend didn't continue today, but there are very obvious issues, and I think a lot of it is probably Jurgen Klopp right now struggling to figure out how to field a team essentially without center backs, right? Like right. you do have to give them a fair amount of credit for me to arriving at this point without us really giving too much thought to the notion that they don't have center backs. Uh, to now it's very clear that they're struggling to find a balance, right? I think today they probably attacked a bit more, and so they leave themselves open. They concede three goals. In previous games, it's, you know, maybe we don't send as many numbers forward, though Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andrew Robertson is to putting in crosses. But you just wonder how the tactics change as a result of not having center backs. Fabinho has done a good job of kind of being makeshift. They played Jordan Henderson at the back today. It was Reese Williams who partnered uh, with, with Fabinho at the back. But without Van Dijk, without Gomez, without Matip, they're struggling. And then the other thing too is, you know, you see Manchester United top of the Premier League and you're going, well, when's, when's the floor going to fall out from under this? And right. wins like this are exactly the kind of thing that make you feel like they are for real. That they do have a shape that they play most games that works, right? Like, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has, for the moment, a tactical system that works. It gets the best out of Paul Pogba, which right. you know is kind of out of nowhere given how Mino Raiola was talking about him potentially leaving at some point. So I think it is interesting that this game does kind of define the current moment for both of these clubs. Yeah, and we learned also that Man United doesn't have to start Bruno Fernandes to to play well. Now, right, yeah, he, to, he come- to, to, to not get to halftime 2-0 down and having you know needing him to go and save them. Right. And then he comes on and, and has the, the game-winning goal on a terrific free kick. Uh, he's a special player. But I think if you're a United fan, that's a, a nice to see Van de Beek can, can start a game and, and, and Fernandez doesn't need to. Uh, like, they're just putting things together well these days, it seems like. And if, what have we heard about Virgil van Dijk? Like, how soon could he come back? I mean, it's an ACL injury, and I I always found weird that in soccer, those seem to be like six to nine month injuries. When in the American sports, like for me, I just think that's a year, right? So maybe he'll come back by the you know by the end of the season, but I would not expect fully fit top of top of the line performances Virgil Van Dyke until next season. So uh, you know maybe he'll come back and offer something, maybe even just like the threat, like a decoy center back, such that it could be. But they just need bodies through I mean like I, I saw people like floating you know loans for MLS center backs like get Walker Zimmerman in he can do a job for six months like <laughs> like literally like literally just people who've played the center back position before would be useful for Liverpool right now former Liverpool chief executive Ian Eyre runs Nashville SC he's got <laughs> contacts at Anfield yes. 
Get him in for a six-month loan. <laughs> a couple of things that weren't terrible for Liverpool fans, I would say. Mohamed Salah getting on the score sheet twice. He's been in kind of a funk, it seems like, lately. Uh, including some off the field stuff where like, it seemed like there was more discussion about him potentially leaving. Yeah. Um, and then just sort of the idea that Liverpool to me looks tired right now. And so maybe not the worst thing in the world to be out of the FA cup, especially no. if you're going to be involved in champions league and trying to, to get back up top of the premier league, you know, that's, Maybe some saving grace there. Maybe I'm being overly rosy. Yeah, I mean, from a Liverpool standpoint, like, I don't know if they would have loved drawing a Manchester United in this round because, I mean, you look at Man City, they field an entirely second-choice team, and they struggled to beat Cheltenham. They eventually get there in the end, but I just don't think you can take every competition seriously, right? Like, in this current environment, you cannot go for the Carabao and for the FA Cup. You probably can't even go, you know, for both the Premier League and the Champions League. You kind of have to be selective in the current environment because otherwise you just completely wear your players out. I think even as it is, like, it is hard, even if you field 11 changes, right, from one game to the next, you're still kind of engaged with the next game, until it's over, then you're on to the next game. And they come so quickly that it is it is really hard. So I, I agree. I think, you know, it's been good for other teams at times to be like, you know what, we need a break. Let's get on the training ground and figure some things out. Let's get some rest. I, I also think, you know, we cannot underestimate. We thought in July when, you know, closed door football began that it would kind of be around for a little bit. And then by the, you know, next season, at some point, crowds will come back. Now you have players that uh, you don't know when you can live, resume your normal life. It probably won't be until the end of the season. It might not even be until the start of next season. So I think that kind of grind and weariness of, I need to be responsible for my behavior with COVID or else, you know, either I'm going to get in trouble or I'm going to put my team at risk. Um, I, I, I think it can be underestimated how important, like, kind of having to preserve the game can potentially be wearying on players. Yeah, players are being asked to play a lot of games by a lot of different groups these days. So I'm always kind of on the player side in this situation. Uh, before we get to my interview with Pia Sundhaga, I do want to talk about the U.S. women's national team and the women's game. Uh, a pair of wins for the U.S. against Colombia down in Orlando this past week, 4-0 and 6-0. Katarina Macario gets her first start for the national team after getting eligible, scores her first goal in the 6-0 win. And that, to me, is the big news coming out of the week. Though we did see Megan Rapino come back and, and play pretty well. She barely played in 2020. Um, Carly Lloyd got a start as well. And in February, uh, we've got the She Believes Cup is on the schedule. So hopefully the teams will arrive okay. Uh, Canada, Brazil, and Japan are the opponents for the U.S. in that tournament. In terms of this past week, what stood out to you? I would agree. It would, it would definitely be Katarina Macario uh, making her U.S. women's national team debut. And you look at just kind of her pedigree as a Brazilian who plays for Lyon. Like, that's kind of a really interesting dynamic to introduce into this team. And I, I, I'm always kind of curious because 
at some point, the generation of women's national team players that have led to two successive World Cup wins uh, are going to need to be phased out a little bit. I know it's harsh to say it in that way, but you know, Megan Rapinoe's not going to play forever. Uh, and, and I know that there are still tremendous players, but I am curious who carries the baton into a much more competitive environment at the women's national picture will be come 2023 in particular obviously the olympics in the intervening period should they be held but the women's world cup in 2023 is going to be a beast and i think the u.s women's national team needs to start finding that kind of next identity the the next kind of growth in the style of play the next generation of players so the more that we see players like katarina macario coming through that could potentially lead that um it's it's huge for the development of the women's game here because i think England and Holland and you know the, the the other the other major you know European players in the men's game are coming for our stuff and so like I, I think the U.S. women's national team needs to start bracing themselves for that and really kind of getting themselves into gear for the you know those major tournaments yeah and it's still up in the air whether the Olympics are going to happen this year that is still a major tournament for the U.S. women's national team for international women's soccer at large and I really do I do hope the Olympics happen. I, we're seeing reports kind of going one way in, in the next lately, and, and we'll find out more hopefully as time goes on here. But, you know, that women's soccer tournament could be Katarina Macario becoming a superstar. Yeah. You know, or it could also be a, a fond farewell to Rapino and Carly Lloyd. You know, it's it's a situation where a lot could happen in the next few months. And... And for Macario, I, I, you know, I want to keep a close eye on her. How do, how do things go at Lyon, where she's headed now, and where they're in the middle of a season where they are not in first place right now in the French League? We, you know, we talked about this. If you want to listen to my interview with Ada Hegerberg last week about Hegerberg coming back for the first time in a year, how excited she is about playing with Macario. And I like the fact that we're, we can actually watch these games now. You know, in the U.S., if you're on ATA Football, which is a free site, and, and they've got the French League games from time to time. So, well, Chris, always great to have you on and enjoyed the conversation. Have a great week. Thank you, sir. I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga or the Copa Libertadores and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable system? You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Copa Libertadores, and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch the top leagues from France, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like Be In Sports and English and Spanish, Goal TV, and many more and it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. Now, here's my interview with Pia Sundhaga. Our guest today is one of the most interesting people in world football. 
Pia Sundhaga has for the past two years been the coach of the Brazil women's national team, which will meet the United States in the She Believes Cup on February 21st in Orlando. She also coached the U.S. to two Olympic gold medals and a World Cup silver medal between 2007 and 2012. She had a 19-year playing career that included two World Cups and an Olympics for Sweden, a third-place World Cup finish in 91, and a championship trophy at the Euro in 1984. She joins me today from Porto Alegre, Brazil. Pia, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Great to be back, so to speak. (laughs) Exactly. It's great to see you. Um, I want to start with a basic question here. You have coached national teams all over the world, the U.S., Sweden, China. Why did you want to coach the Brazil women's national team? Well, I got the the offer, the question. I couldn't say no because uh, if... Um, you know, if you live in Sweden, uh, we all remember the World Cup 58 against Brazil with the men. And uh, I couldn't just turn it down. I was supposed to continue with the girls. Uh, I'm fascinated about development. But uh, when um, they called, then I just say yes. And then I start to think about what I have been saying yes to. And uh, it is very challenging and very much fun. So I just, I just had to do it. Did you move your life to Brazil or do you just spend part of the year there? I moved immediately to uh, Rio. Uh, I want to be part of the culture because it's so different from anything else I've done before. Uh, it's like, uh, you know, I uh, went to U.S., uh, and then in Sweden, and it's very different. So in order to be successful, I really need to know the people, uh, how to coach them, because uh, I have to change my coaching style a little bit, I, I think. And uh, the other thing is it's a great experience to uh, come to South America and uh, the, the country of football and to be part of it. So I'm staying in Rio. Okay, so... In the last two years, what are some of the things you have learned about your Brazilian players and about women's football in Brazil? Well, uh, you need to be patient, so to speak. Uh, The communication, which is all about actually, it's very different. So it takes time. And I think it's, I don't, you know, it's hard. I try to learn Portuguese. I will start with communication. Um, uh, that's so important that I reach the players. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, I'm fascinated about the technique. They, uh, they are very technical. And my job is to, to uh, you know, get some sort of direction. Uh, you know, they can knock around, around the ball, uh, you know, whenever and however, but uh, we need some sort of direction, a little bit tactics. Uh, and um, in order to do that, uh, we talked a little bit about the, the fitness part. You know, I've been in U.S. and I know about fitness and um, the word grit. That's something I would like to add to this country because they are very technical warm people and they they want to learn and that's a great environment for for all of us what would you say are the very biggest challenges to your job to put everybody on the same page uh if you want to win something uh, yes you need stars and i've had stars both in in the u.s and in sweden and we have stars here as well but in order to win something you have to do it together 
and uh, respect the different kinds of roles. And um, sometimes uh, it's good for a Brazilian player to be emotional. And you just laugh, wow, what happened? They just scored goals. But sometimes when they only play with their emotional feelings, then when it doesn't go very well and the game is a little bit out of order, they we need to lean on and, and rely on the tactics. And I think that is the a little bit of a balance. When should we actually uh, you know, try to do what we prepared and when should we go crazy? Uh, I think that that kind of balance could make the difference if we win or lose. There was big news a few months ago when the Brazilian Federation, the CBF, announced that the women's players would be paid the same per day as the men's players when they are with the national team. Could you tell me the story about what led to that change? You know, <laughs> um, I'm not in, I'll put it like this. You know, everybody's talking about uh, to be equal. Yes, when it comes to, for me, when it comes to have good coaches, have, have fields and, and, and so on, and be able to play the big games like the World Cup and Olympics or what. But when it comes to money, I try to stay out of that discussion because um, it, sometimes it carries away uh, when you talk about money. And for me, it's only about the game because when I... I was professional once in, in Italy when I didn't make any money. And as a coach in Sweden, I didn't make any money either as a club coach. But uh, Mark Kikorian, he brought me to um, U.S. and little by little, I got these big jobs. But the, the passion for soccer has, you know, that's why I'm sitting here. When everything happened, and I, don't get me wrong, I think this is important. Uh, but I think there are people around me doing a better job to to talk about the money. But uh, when it happened, it's not only about the money. It started with, they actually uh, had a foreign coach for the first time and a woman. They had one before, but this is the first time they had a, you know, from another culture. And then uh, we, I got a new boss uh, and, and actually two, uh, two women um, besides me. Uh, and uh, I think it's a little bit about a change of attitude. It's so much more important than the money. And, and again, money is important, but the fact that I feel that the CBF now, they truly believe that it's important uh, with the women's soccer, not only for winning the gold medal. Uh, it, it's about the change in attitude, and it's in, important for the society as well. So I, I really feel a part of something, the, the fantastic word change. We do have a chance to change in this country. And I really feel that they, they uh, trust uh, whatever I try to do my very best uh, on and off the field. And uh, that's why I think it's, so, it's crazy important and it's very um, encouraging as well. Are all of your players on the senior women's national team full professionals at the club level? Yes, uh, they are, uh, and uh, they don't make that a lot, a lot of money. But the most important to be professional uh, is you have a chance to only play football. You can try to improve your game, and uh, it, it looks very different from one player from uh, well, international compared to Corinthians. Uh, but they are professional, yes.
Okay. I like your Brazilian accent there on Corinthians. That's that's good stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, when, when I think of Brazilian women's football, I think of Marta, who's 34 now, and Formiga, who's 42 now and still playing and actually played in the 1995 World Cup that you played in. Um, do those two players still have a role in your Brazilian national team? Uh, right now, uh, yes, they are competing for a spot, of course. And it's funny uh, when you say that because we played against boys today and uh, Marta is such a, um, it's, uh, it's just such a big player for everybody. It doesn't matter who you, you come up here, they want to have a, uh, a selfie with Marta. And, and she's great around people as well. And uh, right now, I would say, yes, they will play a part if they are team, uh, team players. Because, as I said, uh, you know, both of them have been around the game forever, and that's a strength. But they can't take any, uh, everything, anything for granted. They, and they need to show up uh, and, and improve the game every day. And uh, bringing some young players uh, will remind them of this will not come easy to you. You have to, you know, uh, compete and work hard. I remember the 2019 World Cup when Brazil was eliminated by France and Marta gave an impassioned speech to the camera at the end of the game, sort of challenging the country of Brazil and challenging the younger generation of players. From your perspective, what what do you think Marta wanted and do you think Brazil is responding to that? Of course, I don't know. I've not asked her uh, about uh, her speech after the World Cup. But what I'm seeing is that we need new players coming up. And we need the new players to be able to compete. So we, this country can't uh, rely on Marta Formiga, who's uh, been Cristiana. Uh, and... Uh, that um, mix with old and young is so important for this country to be uh, to be successful. Now, I think we started scouting. I think that is the key. Uh, it's scouting and make sure that people think it's important to find some new players. Uh, and um, because young players, uh, of course, they have not the long experience as Marta. And uh, if they want to make it, they uh, they really need to improve the game and compete. So I think uh, there is a little bit of a movement. Um, they are changing the attitude because um, the young players, uh, you know, they we have players all over the world. Not even not only in Brazil, we you know in Europe and even in US. So. Uh, it's contagious. If you say something, it's contagious. Uh, and it's not only about you have to work hard. No, you have to find the players as well. And then you have tried to find the DNA of a Brazilian player. Uh, so it's many pieces to put together in order to, to, to get that nice picture. In search of players, have you traveled to a bunch of different parts of Brazil? Or, or how do you try to keep on top of things like that? Well, I started to, to uh, try to get hold of the culture. So I've seen uh, many games. I've been traveling and there's a, we have a lot of, of teams in, in Sao Paulo, for instance. Uh, but I've been uh, watching some practices, uh, talking to coaches. And of course, sometimes when they speak English, it's great. But sometimes we need to translate and so on. But I really feel when I 
get out there on their pitch, on their field, they embrace this uh, this old crazy Swedish woman. Because I really want to be generous and, and try to share what I learned in U.S. And when your team plays in the United States next month, what should we be looking for? Who on your team should we be looking for in terms of maybe younger players? I hope when you watch the game, uh, I, I would like the uh, when you watch it, you say, okay, there is a team. It's cohesive team. I think that is the most important thing. And I also have to, well, you know, Marta and Dibinia. They've been playing in the U.S. for a while, and, and they are they are good. Uh, and I would like to drop another name, and that is Hafa. She is playing in China. I've been watching the league, and she's doing very well. I really hope that she stays healthy, she stays fit, because she will make the difference in the back four. So keep an eye on her, please. Okay, will do. How will you measure success in your job as the Brazil coach? Uh, it's a little bit different from when I came to U.S. Because the first thing I heard uh, was, um, you know, uh, the U.S. soccer saying, well, uh, I see gold. There's always, you know, striving for that gold man. When I came here to uh, the Brazil, they say, well, we expect you to stay here forever. So <laughs> it's a little bit different. Uh, and of course, uh, the reason why I'm here is because the next game is important. We want to, we want to win, of course. But it, it, it will take time to change. Change always takes time. And um, uh, success for uh, when talking to CBF and so is when you make the change of attitude. So it, let's say we, we're not getting a medal in the Olympics. Well, mm, I don't know. Uh, that will be very disappointing, of course, because we have a high expectations. Uh, however, there's always another uh, a goal, and that is to, to uh, change the attitude. Uh, new players coming in. And so the next time you, I have the interview with you, it will not be, uh, you will not mention Marta. You will mention some new player. Oh, she's so good. She's 20 and so on. And, and that kind, so you see some sort of development. Uh, and that will, for me at least, I love this um, when uh, something is getting better and you're improving. I just love that environment and that exactly what's happening right now. You have always used your guitar and your singing voice to connect with people wherever you've been around the world, Pia. Have you learned any bossa nova down there? Oh, bossa nova is so hard. Uh, <laughs> samba is hard. Uh, but I learned some words. Uh, and uh, that's a great way to connect to people. That's absolutely true. And then people in interviews, they, uh, they ask me if I'm going to sing. And then eventually I'll say, hey, you know what? I'm not a singer. I'm just a, a coach. So I try to coach. But it's great because they get curious about the national team. So, and, and I, you know, what I feel at home. Uh, when I got my apartment, the first thing I bought was a guitar. Uh, the same thing in U.S. I feel home. And I got a very nice present from... From the U.S. team, my last game, I got a fantastic guitar. I still have it, and I just love it. <laughs> just a couple more questions. I appreciate your time on this, as always. 
Um, it seems like European clubs are starting to spend more money on women's football, and we're seeing more American players go to Europe now. Uh, in the next five years, how do you see the women's game changing globally at the club level? I would say uh, speed of play. Uh, you get um, you get better players coming together, and as you said, uh, many of the clubs they 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 put in some some money in the program, and uh, we will compete on the higher level. So in five years from now, the speed of play will be very different, uh, and the, the competition, like I know the the Champions League in, in Europe, for instance. That will be very competitive, and that will also make sure that the, the national team will be, be you know, good as well. Uh, so um, I think uh, watching uh, club teams in China, things happening all over the place and all over the world, which is good for the women's uh, women's game. So it's 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 getting better and better. The quality is getting better and better. FIFA has said that. Uh, it's investing $1 billion in grassroots women's football globally over this four-year period. Do you believe that FIFA money is going to get to the right places to improve the game globally? I hope so. I really hope so. Because one thing that is so dangerous, I, I got this question all the time, is there any downside of you know uh, putting money in, in, in the clubs or... Uh, trying to support the women's game. Uh, I would say it's dangerous if uh, you have nice words, but no actions behind the words. So you say, well, we're going to do this and we think it's important, but deep down inside, there's some of that. It's not important at all. So you need actions behind the words. And if you do, that would change the, the, the women's football uh, in many ways. Not only the, the, you know, you look at the speed of play or the quality, but also the attitude. So I think that is so important actions. And just for a last question here, I will ask how, how long do you want to stay with Brazil and what else do you want to do in your career? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I have a two plus two contract, so we just t talk about that whether I should extend it uh, the next two years because it ends in the end, pretty much in the middle of the Olympics. So it, I think it's good if I know whether I'm going to stay or not. Uh, it all depends on the change. Uh, if uh, I really feel that there were, you know, the words I'm hearing all the time, if you have some actions behind that, and I can, uh, I can be part of the change. Uh, I would definitely stay another two years and maybe even longer. But it all, all depends on what's happening the next day or what I would like to happen the next day. Because, you know, football is, is, is my life. I just love soccer and, and be around the people that want to improve. Uh, that's the best thing ever. Pia Sundhaga is the coach of the Brazilian women's national team, which meets the United States in the She Believes Cup on February 21st in Orlando. Pia, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. See you. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Pia Sundhaga as well as pundit and producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. 
Be safe, everyone. See you next time.